0: Go through a real fun time this morning, and everybody try to find a book of Zephaniah. Oh, is not hard. You're almost at the end of the Old Testament there, so we're moving right along here. Zephaniah is a great book in the Old Testament, and a book that uh, really uh, we'll have some fun with today, looking forward to spending some time in it. As you know, last week we saw the great concept of God's people having a vision in the book of Habakkuk, and the book of Habakkuk is an incredible book because it really, really uh, defines some things. And I told you how that the smaller books of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, really, they really do that. They really focus on uh, issues that are just really, really, really important issues. And uh, there's no more important issue, obviously, than God's people getting an understanding and seeing the vision of God so they know what they need to do with their own lives and how that they, uh, you know, fulfill those things. So we looked at that last week, but uh, this week we're going to be in the book of Zephaniah. And you're going to see today that, again, just like the book of Habakkuk, Zephaniah is another powerful little book that teaches another great concept for Uh, You and me in our life, you know, of trying to build a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ during the time that the nation of Israel is in their decline and shortly before they go into the captivity. Zephaniah's ministry is a unique ministry. It takes place during uh, Judah's troubled times before they fall into apostasy. It's a book like the other ones that we've studied so far. It's before the exile. It's to the southern tribes. But it takes place during Josiah's reign. Now, Josiah was one of the kings back in 2 Kings chapter 22 and 23, if you remember. Josiah is somewhat of a good king. And we know when we studied the fall of the nation of Israel, and we saw how that the kings began to deteriorate, and all the problems began to happen with the nation of Israel, we saw that there were maybe two or three bad kings, and a good king would come along, and you get four more bad ones, and then Pretty soon, the whole nation of Israel is is really in a mess. And Zephaniah's ministry takes place during Josiah's reign. And what we see here, if you go back historically during this time, and this is what Zephaniah is writing about, we see a revival break out. Uh, We see the nation of Israel trying to regain some things with God. It's very small, and it doesn't last. But yet, it's one of those glimmering little lights that take place when uh, everything begins to, uh, you know, fall apart in the nation of Israel. And uh, Zephaniah really focuses on the reason why this revival fails, and because of that, we learn some great lessons why things are not lasting in our lives. You know, as God's people, we are God wants us to really. <coughs> Uh, focus on our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Inwardly, all the things that we really want to focus on for our personal relationship with the Lord. And Zephaniah, in his book here, he hammers home... uh, uh, There's only three chapters, but these three chapters really make a really unique three-point outline because Zephaniah, in his message that he hammers home to the nation of Israel, really focuses on the same problems that you and I have And why revival or why a lasting relationship with God doesn't work in our lives. And we see that, you know, before God's hand comes down and judges the nation of Israel, and long before the nation of Israel is restored, Zephaniah, in this revival that breaks out among the nation of Israel, the fact that it doesn't last, the fact that it really isn't real, the fact that it really just doesn't accomplish what it ought to accomplish. He lays home the great truth that true spirituality and true godliness with God has to start from the inside. And this is the problem with the nation of Israel. This is why it doesn't last. And this is where the great lessons for us come in today. The nation of Israel, their revival was just outwardly. It never took any root starting on the inside in the heart. And today in our lives, we find living in the times that we live in, the Laodicean church period, we find that the reason why God's people have such a tough time today, and I've never seen a time in all the years that I've ministered that God's people are struggling with things the way they are, and it's simply because they are building things on the outside instead of starting on the inside. When we start to work on developing ministries here in the next couple of weeks, in the next year really, One of the things that I'm going to teach you, one of the things that I'm going to lay out for you is the aspect of how you focus when you start to work with people and you make sure that you start with what's on the inside first. So again, this message is very timely and it really helps us put together some great concepts that we all need to know and understand. So let's go to the Lord in prayer this morning and uh, we'll, we'll look to Him for guidance through His Spirit. Father, we thank You and praise You for the Lord Jesus. We love You so much. And we thank you, Father, so much for the fact that you love us, you care for us, that you have given us, Lord, the truth of the Word. And we pray today that this humble servant, Lord, will be able to open up the book and display the Word of God that would be pleasing to you. I don't have anything to say on my own. I certainly don't have any knowledge or insight into anything other than the Holy Spirit of God illuminating my heart, showing me from the Scriptures. Lord, it's been good to come through the Bible book by book. It's it's just like it's built a foundation with our people. And I see so many of them. I see so many of them, Lord, that are on the verge of really taking that next step. And yet at the same time, Lord, I know you'll continue to bring people that are like-minded people that love God, love the Word of God, and really want to make their lives count, not only with their own families, but, Lord, to people around them. And help us, Lord, in all that we endeavor to do, that you always take, as you so deservedly, Lord, the honor and glory of everything that we do. And we, Lord, build around you uh, this message today, hoping that the Lord Jesus Christ will be glorified and honored in everything that we say and do. In Jesus' name, for his sake we ask it. Amen. Now, this book has a breakdown, much like the rest of the books that we talked about. Uh, and I've given you a breakdown. And yet, the breakdown on this really forms the three-point outline, so to speak. Now, the, ask, the idea of this book, obviously, is the day of the Lord, as That's the second coming of Christ. We have defined that over and over and over again in our studies. And we know that the second coming of Christ is the theme of the Bible. We know that it's certainly the driving force behind the prophets as they really focus on, uh, you know, where Israel's at in relationship to the Lord's coming. So in chapter 1, we find that in relationship to the day of the Lord, Zephaniah deals with the content. And he tells the nation of Israel that they need to look within. In chapter 2, he deals with the day of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, from the aspect of its extent, what all God's going to accomplish. And he says that they're supposed to look around. And in chapter 3, he deals with the second coming of Christ into the aspect of its intent. And he tells the nation of Israel and that relationship to look beyond. Look within, look around, and look beyond. And boy, that forms a great concept from which we want to really takes this thing and look at it in the aspect of, of an incredible uh, study for ourselves this morning. And that really is the study of the, of the inward man. You know, the Bible, you find examples of this all the way through the Bible. I remember one time back in Samuel, I think it's in 1 Samuel 8, where the nation of Israel is uh, looking to uh, find their first king. that They, uh, they picked Saul over David. And we know that, you know, God tells them, hey, look, Saul's not the right guy. And yet they say, well, we want Saul. Samuel gets quite upset about it, and, you know, he's kind of crying before the Lord, and he says, "Uh, Lord, like they've rejected him. And God says uh, something to him that I always thought was incredible, that's a great truth. He says, Samuel, you don't need to feel bad about this because they've not rejected you. They have rejected me. A little bit later on in chapter 16 and verse 7 of 1 Samuel, God shows us a great salient verse, a great concept, a verse with great concept to it. And it carries all the way through the Bible where he says that basically man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees man's heart. He says in that same verse, he says another great concept, there's a number of concepts in it. He says that the Lord seeth not as man seeth. He says someplace else in Isaiah, Isaiah 55 verse 11, he says that God's ways are not my ways. And he gives us a great principle that we as human beings don't look at things the way God does. The people saw Saul, Saul was a good-looking guy. Bible says he was head and shoulders above all the rest of the guys. Bible says that he looked like a real leader. Bible says in every way he, he was taller, he was, had a great personality, a magnetic personality, people were drawn to him, he, he seemed to be a natural leader. But in truth of the matter is, he was the worst man to lead the people of Israel. God's choice was a little scrawny bone boy over there watching the sheep, about 14 or 15 years old, by the name of David. And God says that man looketh on the outward appearance, but God sees the heart. And that's why lasting change in our lives, it only stays lasting because of the fact that it begins within our own heart. You know, in time, uh, many of you are going to be, as I've already said, uh, you're, going to, you're going to be working with people. And uh, I've worked with people for almost 35 years, and some of you have worked with me in those areas for, you know, 20 years anyhow. And we have learned over the years, and we've talked about this before, and this is... One of the number of concepts you'll learn as you work to work with people, and it's the concept of attitude versus action. And you, if you just understand that little concept, it'll explain so many things in life. And it, attitude and action really is a a a term that really defines the forming of our attitudes and the actions that follow. You know what? When you when you get knowledge, your knowledge it's facts. You take that knowledge in and you process it. That knowledge in time uh, gives you an attitude. It forms an attitude about whatever the information is. And whatever that information is, that in time it produces the action. And that's exactly the way that it works. So you can see now when somebody doesn't get the... This is why uh, unsaved children with unsaved parents, you know, and, and have such a problem. Because the parents give them wrong information... They go to the world instead of going to the uh, the Bible. And by the time they figure it out, it's too late. You see, back in my day growing up, there was a guy by the name of Dr. Spock. That's not the Star Trek guy. One had pointed ears, the other had a pointed head. (laughs) Dr. Spock revolutionized the concept of raising your children. And everybody bought into Dr. Spock. But, you see the problem with it is... It takes 30 or 40 or 50 years before you find out that that stuff doesn't work. And by the time Dr. Spock's boy killed himself, I don't know how many generations of parents, unsaved parents, had already lost their kids to the philosophy of Dr. Spock. You would have been better just to follow Spock. But Dr. Spock, the guy with the pointed head versus the pointed ears, he led a lot of families astray. You know why? Because he, he focused on the outward. He focused on the things that were outward. He never focused on the biblical principle that changed the inward. And he formed a lot of attitude. Now, this is why, down the line, when you start to work with couples that are having marital problems, how many times I've heard this over the years. I've heard a wife say, you know what? I just just can't stand this guy anymore. I'm to the point now where I don't want to even stay with him. And... And, and, and I'll say, well, why don't we try to work this thing out? Why don't I sit down with him, and why don't I help him? You know what? Nobody's ever shown him, and I'll just work with him, and I'll, I'll, I'll show you. And here's what she'll say. She'll say, you know what? She'll say, I heard this a thousand times. She'll say, Bob, you know what? She says, here's what will happen. You'll talk to him. He'll do what's right for a while, and then a month later, he'll be right back where it was. We've done it so many times. He is not going to change And I've come to the place now after 10, 5, 15, 20 years, I don't love him anymore. You know what the problem is? The problem is that guy has always just adjusted his action. He always adjusted his action. When his wife got upset with him about something, he'll say, honey, I'll do better. When his wife said, you leave your clothes all over the floor and you got crumbs all over the kitchen floor, and why don't you put that thing in a microwave because it splatters all over the thing, he kept saying, I'll do better. And he does better for a while. And then six weeks later, he's right back to splatter in the microwave. Huh, honey? You know why? Because I don't give a flip about that microwave. (laughs) I'm a pastor. I am changing the eternal destiny of people's souls. And I'm going to waste two seconds thinking about a dumb microwave. I like the splatters. It gives the other food a little better taste. But the cat in the microwave was too much, i got to (laughs) admit. Just kidding. Just kidding. You see my problem? My problem is I don't really care about the microwave. So if I took a course on microwave loving, (laughs) then I would change my attitude about it, would change my action. I'm being funny, but the truth of the matter is that's why we don't change in our relationship sometimes. Because of the fact that we want to believe what we believe, we have what we want, and we'll adjust the action, but we'll never really adjust the attitude. And adjusting the action only will never solve any problem. I call it treating the symptoms instead of solving the problems. As you see the same, I saw the same things in my kids growing up. I'm sure you see it in yours. You know, we talked about in weeks gone by of establishing a, a road of discipline. And I'm going to tell you, your quick kids will learn so quickly. Your kids will learn so quickly when they can tell by the inflection of your voice when you say, I'm not going to tell you this again. I'm not going to tell you again to pick that up. He says to himself, according to my mom and dad, that means I have 15 more times to continue to do what I'm doing because they never react after the first time. They just keep saying it, and I'm, you keep count, I'll keep count, and we'll get, when we get to the 9, then we'll start taking it seriously. When it hits 10, we'll go to code red, and when it hits 11, then we'll do what we tell them to say. You know what that is? That's attitude versus action. That is adjusting the action to fit their circumstances because nothing is really changing on the inside. There's no attitude adjustment. Attitude produces action. In a marriage, in a family... You have to change the attitude. Now, that's what the Bible does. The Bible takes away from us the excuse, I'll do better. It leaves me cold and naked in the kitchen when it comes to the microwave issue. I have nowhere to hide because I need to change my attitude. My attitude is, yeah, it does make a mess. But I like messes. My attitude is, you know, it really causes the problem. So you change. It becomes something that you be concerned about. And that's true of everything in life. Changing the action won't solve anything. That's what Israel did. That's what Zephaniah is preaching about. He's saying, you know what? There is a revival in Israel, but it's only temporary, and it won't last, and it's not going to change anything because Israel is putting a Band-Aid on the issue. Israel is treating the symptoms instead of really focusing on the problems. And that will carry over. Into your life and my life as a husband and wife and our relationships, our children, every aspect, our jobs, everything, and certainly uh, in our spiritual relationship with God and the Word of God. Now, this revival in Josiah's time—it it so matches what goes on in in our own time today. And I know that you know in the where we're living today, we have a lot of misdefined word. If there's any word that is used wrongly today it's the word revival and America hasn't seen a revival in the sense of a biblical revival for almost 100 years we have come to the place in our churches today where we schedule revival revival couldn't come in my life when I unexpected because on the calendar here we have got September 4th through the 5th a revival so nobody thinks about revival any other time and then you complain about it because of that week, but that's where you schedule it in. Let me tell you something. In the old days, I'll tell you a story. Remember us boys that were down to Joplin here not too long ago, down there preaching? Remember that story that old boy told us, how that, how that church got started down there? That a young preacher came down there in Joplin in the 1920s. He told us this story around the campfire. It was, it was an incredible story. He came down to Joplin in the 1920s to hold a revival. And the revival was supposed to be the church had it scheduled for a week. The revival turned out being never-ending. It went on week after, week after week after week after week. People were getting saved. Things were being changed. And when it was at the result of it, this church down there started because of it. And it got started because somebody came in. God brought a revival in the true sense of revival. And it rocked that city. Hey, in the old days when the revivals came, the bars closed. People got saved. They didn't open again. It was an impact into the city that everybody felt. And just like you can have the biggest evangelist in the world come in today, and it doesn't matter where he holds it, Kemper Arena, wherever, and you get 10,000 churches show up when he leaves, nothing really changes. The bars are still open. All the places that, that are ungodly are still going on. And nothing really changes because we're living in a day and age where everything for us is on the outside and very, very, very little is really on the inside. And that's where we're at. Truth of the matter is, for your life and my life, a child of God should live in a constant state of revival. I don't need to, I mean, I enjoy them because I like to hear good preaching and I need to get preached to. But let me tell you something. As a child of God, I don't need somebody coming to town to revive me. My Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, that my inward man needs to be renewed day by day. I should live in a revival state 24-7. Ephesians 4, 23 says that I'm to renew the spirit of my mind. You see, the Bible, Romans chapter 12 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, verses 1 and 2, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice. Now be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove it is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And the Bible says that, that, that I'm to renew my mind, I'm to renew my spirit every day that I am, to, I am to have a fresh revival. And how do you do that? I know that's easy to say. You know how you do that? You do it first of all by understanding what the Bible does for you. And I don't think God's people, well I know they don't. The majority of them, most of you probably do. But I don't think the average Christian today understands the value of the Bible that he has in his lap. Because, you see, I can go to the public library. Remember I told you that night we did the New Year's Eve thing. I said I had 100 books that I'd give you if you wanted to research the stuff that we talked about that night. And I went through. And if you would go down to the library, I'm not saying you won't find good books. I'm telling you, you'll find books that that will inform you about facts and history. You'll find books that will conform you. You'll find books that will reform you. You'll find books that will misinform you. But the Bible doesn't do any of that. The Bible is a supernatural book. And where the world's books and writings may reform you, conform you, inform you, or misinform you, the Bible does something that no other book can do. It transforms you. But that has to be from the inside, not the outside. That's Israel's problem. Zephaniah's message for Israel is really an outline for us. It says, look within, look around, look ahead. Now, last week we talked about the concept of a strong tower. and we talked about uh, getting the vision that you stand upon the watch, upon a tower. And I told you that that tower was one of the greatest studies you'll take in the Bible. Sometimes it's called the Tower of David. Sometimes it's called a strong tower. Sometimes it's called a high tower. Whatever it's called, it all means the same thing, it's just different implications that show you different concepts and what it does is it shows you that you and I as a Christian are to be on a high tower that is a strong tower that is a tower of David that means it's based on the Word of God that is it's the Word of God in your life transforming you to the place that you see things from the inside that you are in a position to look at the world your family your ministry your job everything around you and you see it from God's standpoint and not your own standpoint you know basically in the world we live in there's two kinds of people those two kinds of people are saved people and unsaved people Bible makes it really clear it really simple in the world that we live in there are only basically two kinds of people in a collective state there are saved people and there are unsaved people now Let's discard the saved people a moment because we're talking about saved people here. We're talking about why revival, why relationships with God don't last within us. And I'm trying to help you understand some things here because, you know, we're going some places here, Lord willing, in the next couple of of months, in the next year, next two years, of where we're going to focus. And I've got a lot of exciting things to lay out for you, but you know, that's, you come on the 14th or the 13th or whatever day that is. And uh, But the bottom line is, we know that in God's people, in Christianity, there are also two kinds of people. We know that there are those who walk after the Spirit, and those who walk after the flesh. We talk this in Romans, 1 Corinthians, and many, many places. We know that the ones that walk after the Spirit are the ones that deal with the Word of God from within. They renew their minds day by day, they focus on the things of God, and they're their relationship with God is a continual thing, as is a revival and all of the things. Their own personal relationship with God, they're living in a state of worship. They're living in a state of constant renewal, revival, if you want to call it. They're following, feeding the new nature, and they're watching from their tower inwardly. Remember now, that was the purpose of the tower last week. The only reason you get that high up so you can see everything is not to see what everybody else is doing, but the first and foremost thing was to see what you are doing. Self-examination leads to self-evaluation, which leads to self-determination. That's the vision we talked about last week. Now that's what Zephaniah is up against with the nation of Israel. You don't have to turn to these passages. I want to read them for convenience. You can look them up later. But here's here's the same concept with Israel. Now, one of the greatest places that you'll find about Israel in the defining passages is in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 43, 44, and 45. This is the definitive passage on the nation of Israel at the time of the first coming of Christ. Here's what he says. He tells a story. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, that man here is the nation of Israel. You'll see it in a second. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through the dry places, seeking rest, and findeth none. Then he saith, I will return into my house from whence I came out. And when he has come out, he findeth it empty, swept, and garnished. Then goeth he, and taketh with himself seven other spirits more wicked than himself, these seven spirits are found in the Old Testament laid out very clearly for you in the book of Proverbs if you've got the time to look it up sometime. more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there, and the last state of that man is worse than the first. Now, here's the key. Even so shall it be unto this wicked generation. Now, he's talking to the nation of Israel in Matthew chapter 12, and he's saying the nation of Israel is like a man who has an unclean spirit, because Israel does. That unclean spirit leaves, and it comes back, and when it comes back, it obviously brings seven more spirits, and you find this whole thing corralled for you in the book of Proverbs and shows you how Israel's in a mess that they're in and it shows you what those seven other spirits are. But that's not our message today. The thing that you see from this, when this spirit comes back, Israel is swept and garnished. She's cleaned up her act. She's got religious garlands hanging over everything, she's got crucifixes on all the walls. <laughs> She's got, she's got religious items everywhere. She has cleaned herself up. She is swept and garnished man on the outside. She looks good. The problem is the first word in that little description thing is she's empty. No Holy Spirit of God. You see, this is, what, this is what Israel did. This is why this revival didn't last. And this is why the revival in our life doesn't last because we turn outwardly. Oh, we're not empty. We have the Holy Spirit of God, but we follow after the flesh instead of after the spiritual things, and then we wind up just like Israel. Now, this is exactly what Jesus said when he met in Matthew chapter 23. And Matthew chapter 23 is a great chapter. There are seven woes in Matthew chapter 23. It says, whoa, 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 seven times. You think people have enough sense to stop when somebody said, whoa, seven times. Not us. And in verse 27 of chapter 23, he's talking about the nation of Israel, and he says, you're like whitened sepulchers. Those are tombs. Go to Washington, D.C., you'll see all kinds of them. You'll see one for Lincoln, one for Jefferson. Go over to France, you'll find one for Napoleon. I mean, uh, they're everywhere. Go to Canton, Ohio, you'll find one for McKinley. Beautiful buildings, sculptured, painted white, gleaming in the sun, but inside, what do you got? A dead man. Maggots, dust, bones, the most terrible stench you'd ever smell in your life if you could smell it. And he's saying the nation of Israel is just like that. They are, they are white as sepulchers. They're all cleaned up on the outside, but they're dead, they stink, and they're decaying on the inside. Isaiah saw it. In Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, he saw the same problem when he said, Wherefore the Lord said, Forasmuch as this people draw Israel, draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by them the precept of men. He said, You know what? You give me lip service. You talk about how much you love me. You talk about how much you honor me. You get up and give your stinking little testimony up there about what God I've done for you. But down inside your heart, there's nothing. You're far from me. That's the state of the nation of Israel. Oh, religiously, they're just hanging out the flag, man, religiously. You'd think they were the greatest thing in the world. But internally, nothing. And this is why the revival has nothing to grasp onto. And this is why so many of God's people today struggle with the things that they struggle with. It's such an incredible study. And I'm telling you, these Old Testament books, especially the Minor Prophets, because they're smaller in content, boy, they come right straight to the point and give great definitions of New Testament concepts. For instance, now, understanding this great concept of inward versus outward, attitude versus action, in the two types of Christians. In John chapter, now you want to turn here, in John chapter 11 and John chapter 12, you have a great story that illustrates this. And it's the story, we talked about this last week just a little bit, it's the story of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Now these three people characterize really the three groups of God. The nation of Israel and then the two types of Christians. In our study. Now, I know that I can go someplace else and show you three types of Christians in this area of study, but in this inward study, in this study that shows why it works in some people's lives and it does not work in other people's lives, oh, it's Lazarus, Mary, and Martha, John chapter 11 and John chapter 12. Now, let's look at Lazarus for a moment. I want to read here to chapter 11. Just kind of walk with me here for a moment so we get a context. It says, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. First thing I want you to notice, that they're all related. We'll see how that all connects here later. It was that Mary Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore his sister sent unto him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. When Jesus heard that, He said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And when He had heard, therefore, that He was sick, He abode two days still in the same place where He was. Then after that saith He to His disciples, Let us go into Judea again. His disciples say unto Him, Master, the Jews of late sought the stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there is no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go, that I may wake him out of his sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well, howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there. To the intent ye may believe, nevertheless let us go unto him. Now I'm going to tell you, (laughs) those 15 verses are loaded. I mean to tell you there is more in those 15 verses than you could ever hope to dig out of there. Oh, he's telling them some stuff that goes way beyond Lazarus just dying here. Oh, that concept of sleep and death, boy, that figures out, well, we ain't got time to get into all that. We got to stay with the thing here. But boy, I'll tell you what. Wow. This is a great study here. There's so much in here. Now let's talk about Lazarus. What is Lazarus in this whole scheme of things? Now remember, the New Testament, the and, and the New Testament illustrates. All of the principles, excuse me, the Old Testament illustrates all of the principles. Now, I know that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are found in your Bible in the New Testament, but technically speaking, we know they're still in the Old Testament because the book of Hebrews says that the death of the testator is what brings about the New Testament from the Old Testament. Christ hasn't died yet. So, technically speaking, we're still in the Old Testament. But we know that all the stories in these books show us great New Testament principles in the New Testament. And Lazarus, oh, he's a picture of the nation of Israel. Watch this. It's incredible. Lazarus represents the nation of Israel. And in our story, Lazarus gets sick and he dies. You realize that Lazarus is only one of two men in the Bible, in the New, te- me, in the New Testament that Jesus says he loves? In the New Testament, there are only two men that Jesus says that he loves. One is Lazarus and one is John, the Apostle John now we already know that the Apostle John is one of the greatest pictures of what your life and my life should be as a New Testament Christian and we know that Lazarus is a picture of the nation of Israel and it's no accident in that study we find that these two men are the only two men that Jesus says that he loved now I know that Jesus loved everybody I'm not saying that for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son I know what the verse says I'm saying he's drawing your attention here that he's saying he loves Lazarus as a man And he loves John as a man because one represents the church and the other represents the nation of Israel. Now, he also says he loves Mary and Martha. But Mary and Martha are two types of Christians here. So, but I'm talking about the man concept right now. All right. The next thing. And look at verse 6. Look at verse 6. Now, Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Verse 5. When he had heard, therefore, that he was sick, he abode two days still in the same place where he was. Now, why did he do that? I'll tell you why. I've already taught you. The third day in the Bible is a picture of the second coming of Christ. He found that he hears he's sick. He waits two days before he goes. He shows up on the third day, which is a picture of the second coming of Christ. I mean, I've laid that thing out for you through everything there just a couple of weeks ago. Lazarus is the picture of the nation of Israel. If not at all, look at verse 9. Jesus answered, Are thou there twelve hours in a day? that what it says did he say there Jesus answered there are not 12 hours in it in a day that what it says well maybe that's what it says that what it says it says no it says there are 12 hours in the day not a day the day what's the day Second coming of Christ, those 12 hours are found over there in Mark chapter 13, verse 35, laying out the four watches of 12 hours each from 6 o'clock at night to 6 o'clock in the morning. You've got something here, more than just Lazarus as a man dying. Don't you know that every every story in the Bible represents some aspect of the nation of Israel? And here's Lazarus, a man who gets sick and dies, Israel's spiritually dead, Israel's diseased, He's one of only two men in the New Testament that Jesus says he loved. John's the other. In verse 6, he says he's going to wait and come on the third day, just like I laid out to you a couple of weeks ago. And then on top of that, he says I'm not <coughs> 12 hours in the day, not a day. He's talking about one particular day in the Bible that the Bible lays out all the way through that you already know the second coming of Christ. We're dealing with a picture of the restoration of the nation of Israel. Now, when Jesus shows up in time, as the story progresses, he calls him by name and he resurrects Lazarus just like he will resurrect the nation of Israel in Ezekiel chapter 36, Ezekiel chapter 37, and a thousand other places in the Bible. He's a type of the nation of Israel. Now we got Mary and Martha. Now, let me just say a word about Mary and Martha because it's attending, well, when preachers preach on this, that they always give the impression that that only women are Marthas, and let me just say that to you, to, just to you before we get started. Any father, that's not true, brother. I have met some men that are great Marthas. Martha isn't just a picture of a woman. A Martha is a picture of men and women as Christians. Martha and Mary represent as Lazarus represents the nation of Israel. Mary and Martha represent the two types of Christians. One that always does it outwardly, one that always does it inwardly. But take the fact that that some preacher gets up and wants to use that just because he wants to bring all the women in line in the church and be down on the women. Let me tell you something. In my lifetime, I have met more men who have the characteristics of Martha than I ever met women. I just want to set this stage here straight before we go. Because I don't want us as men thinking, well, yeah, he's talking about, oh, yeah, I know a woman like that. I used to go to church someplace in there. I'm not talking about that. Maybe she was. I'm talking about, boy, there are just as many men that follow the concept of Martha as there are uh, women. More men than women. But let's talk about Martha. Now, these two women represent one inwardly, one outwardly. One walks after the flesh, one walks after the spirit one has the right action the other one has has the wrong uh, has the wrong attitude let's look at Martha and when you look at Martha you, you will see some of the things that Zephaniah tried but failed to get the nation of Israel to see and that is simply why revival didn't stay why it wasn't lasting for you and for me as men and women in the body of Christ it shows us why we struggle with the things that we struggle with and how to overcome those struggles. And boy, I'll tell you what, there are some great concepts here. And I want you to see some things uh, out this. Now, in chapter, uh, and here again, I'm going to, you don't have to turn to this because I want you to focus on what I'm saying. And sometimes, I know for me, it's hard to read and listen. So just listen. You can look it up again. Now, you won't miss nothing. In chapter 11 (coughs) through chapter 20 and 28, (coughs) We have the story progressing here that as Jesus comes to Lazarus, he waits his two days and he comes. When Martha hears that <coughs> Jesus is coming to meet him, the Bible says she ran, runs out to meet him. She goes to meet him. As Martha, in fact, it says in the verse, says, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. What a great verse. Now, you'd read that verse and you wouldn't think much about it. In fact, I've heard guys say, I've heard guys preach. Martha guys. i heard guys preach. Now, now you can pick on Martha all you want, but she was the first one that went out to see Jesus. Oh, they missed the great concept. Do you ever notice the first thing she does when she goes out to see him? She winds up telling him what he didn't do right. She gets to him, She says, first thing she says, you know what, Lord, if you, wouldn't have, you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And a dialogue takes place. You see, God has a plan here, and this plan is going to interact in his own way, in his own time, and he will do in Lazarus' death and work in that death to his honor and glory. I already told you that in verse 4, but this death was... It was under his glory. God's doing something here. Martha cannot see anything beyond what she sees. Martha's one of those kind of guys that when she opened, he opens his mouth, his ears go shut. He can't hear. He's the type of Christian that is always telling Lord. Now, I'm going to show you here in a moment. Mary did the exact same thing. If you look down a little bit farther, she says the exact same thing. That Martha said, but oh my goodness, there is a difference. Now I want you to look at this verse again here. It says, Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary sat still in the house. Wow, what a verse. What a great verse that is. Let's let's explore that. Let's just see where that goes. Now as I already said, you're going to find in chapter 11, verse 32, that Mary, when she sees Jesus... She says the exact same thing that Martha does. But you see the difference? Martha's running down the road to find him. Mary's at his feet. Mary's always at his feet. Mary's at his feet. Martha's in his face. But that's beside the point. The key verse here in verse 20 of chapter 11, the whole concept here is the fact that but Mary sat still in the house. You've got to take that word still sometime and run it back to 1 Samuel 9, 1 Samuel 12, Psalm 46. You know, 1 Samuel 9, 27 says, it says, But stand thou still a while, that I may show thee the word of God. You know, as a Christian in your life and my life, I'm I'm not saying you shouldn't do things for God, but you ought to do things for God in the stillness of learning what God has for you. The Marthas of this world have no concept of that. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 says, And that she study to be quiet. And you do your own business to work with your own hands as we have commanded you. Martha can't get to that concept. I'm telling you, it just she cannot grasp the concept of just standing still, staying still. You know why? You know what New Testament principles found in here while she stood still in the house? Don't raise your hand, but think about it for just a second. What New Testament principle, now here's the scenario, here's the scenario, Lazarus is dead, that's a pretty traumatic time, your brother dies, it's pretty traumatic, they went and told Jesus about it, Jesus purposely waits two days, he waits till Lazarus is dead, when Martha hears that he's coming, she trucks down the road and says, hey, you know what, if you'd have been here, my brother wouldn't have died, Mary stayed still in the house, in the midst of a tragic situation of the death of her brother, she knew Jesus was coming, but she stayed still in the house. What New Testament principle goes along with this story? It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, where Paul says, For I have learned whatever state I'm in there with to be content. Mary knew that her brother died. She felt the grief of her brother, but she had learned through the process of an inner relationship with God, that whatever state you're in, therewith to be content. And when Jesus shows up, she takes her rightful place as a representative of what your life and my life should be as someone who builds on the inner things instead of the outer things at the feet of Jesus. At the feet of Jesus. She'd learn whatever state she was in that the contentment of God and the word of God that she had gotten from God was enough to get her through she didn't have to run to Jesus because she knew Jesus was coming to her oh what a principle what a principle you know in Luke chapter 10 that's another place it's another companion story because you know the gospel's kind of give the same story sometime. In Luke chapter 10, you find some more information added in verse 40 to 41. You don't have to turn to it. I'll read it. You can if you want. But it says, Martha is busy. She's cumbered about, the Bible says, with much serving. And Mary, I guess, goes out of the house or goes out of the room or goes wherever. And Jesus is there. And Martha goes over to Jesus. She says, Lord, don't you care that Mary left me here to serve alone? And the Lord's response is a classic response. And it really sets the tone for our Martha Mary Lazarus study. And remember now, Marthas aren't just women. Martha, boy, I'll tell you what, in my years, boy, how many preachers I've seen just be like Martha. Don't you blame it on the ladies. Men have their share of it too. But the Lord's response, he says, Martha, and I can just see. Martha, Martha. Or maybe it was, Martha, Martha. Or maybe it was, Martha, Martha. Thou art careful and troubled by many things. See, Martha never has the ability to look within. She only sees what's going around her. Martha is so busy serving she never learns to minister Martha so busy laboring she never learns she's so busy worrying she never worships she's always busy with things but there isn't a thing in her life that she's ever built in her busyness oh you contrast this to the great woman of Proverbs chapter 31 the virtuous woman Bible says that she works building the clothes for her children for when winter comes. That's not Martha. That's Mary. That's not Martha. That's Mary. Oh, I'll tell you what. Martha is so busy. She's part of a little group. She's so busy learning all the information. Hey, there's Baptist preachers. They get in little groups. I've seen them all my life. They get in their little clicks, they get in their groups, boy, and one thing is said to somebody, and in less time than you can take to throw a rock across that road, it's across the country, and every preacher in the world knows it. I ain't kidding you. I'm not kidding you. Somebody says, wow, why don't, don't we live in a great time of telecommunications? Oh, hey, man, you don't need telecommunications. All you need is a telephone, telegraph, or telemartha. It'll be around the world before you know it. Martha's upset. She's upset because she wants people to notice her. And when nobody's around to see what she does, she loses her zeal. Boy, I've seen them like that all my life. See, Martha has never learned the great concept. That's an inward concept. You don't learn it by outward. You learn it by, they have never learned the great concept of ministering alone, by yourself, because you know what, that's exactly in the day and age that we live in the way we may wind up. I love all you po- folks. I love you to death. You're all like my own family. I mean, we've been, I mean, I just love you. I don't know what else to say. I do anything in the world for you. I, I can't look at you, any of you, without thinking how much I love you and how happy I am and, 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 and how God has given us the ability to minister together. And just, I want to do things for you. I want to help you. I want you to be successful. I don't want anybody in this room to get to the judgment seat of Christ and not get everything that God has for you. That's my passion. That's my zeal. I love you. But you know what? I'm not under any illusion that the bottom line of ministry is me and him. Me and him. It's me and him. Because God may take all you away from me and put me someplace where there isn't any Christian friend that you have to stand all by yourself and it just has to be you and him. And you don't have somebody or somebody or somebody to put your arm around you. You don't have somebody to call on the phone. You are there by yourself and you have to make it or break it based on what is on the inside, not what's on the outside. And you ain't going to tell me I don't love you guys and appreciate you guys. Man, we are a band of brothers. Brothers. You're my friend. You're my friend. You're my friend. You're my friend. You, 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 you. All of you. I love you. You're my friend. But there's a friend sticks closer than a brother. you got to get to that point. It doesn't mean you'll ever be at that point. But it means you have to minister with that concept because it sneaks in that you want people to say, Oh, look at me. Always has to be you and him. Every revival in your heart has to start with him. Every day of the month, every week has to start with him. Inside, it's you and him. Because there's nobody, because he's the one that saved you. He's the one that called you. I didn't call you. He called you. He's the one that wants to use you. And yes, he's going to use us together. Yes, he's put us in this church. And he's given us a body and a band of men and women that love each other and love God with no problems. No bickering. No fighting. No nothing yet. Ah, oh, you guys are too good. You are the best of the best. You're creaming a the crop. You're everything a man could want for people as a pastor. But you know what? In spite of all that, I never get myself to the place that I don't know that the push comes to shove. And the bottom line, it just has to be me and him. Me and him. And it has to be you and him. Martha serves, but never ministers. She's always busy, but she never builds anything. She's upset because she wants people to notice her. I never understood that because when you read the passage, Jesus was watching what she was doing, but that wasn't enough. She wanted other people to see her. He wants other people to see him. Jesus watching what she was doing just wasn't enough. Two types of people in Christianity. I'm not kidding you, man. Zephaniah's message, three points without a poem, boy, is right on the money where Israel's at and right where we're at. Are you Mary or are you Martha? What are you building? What have you built? And do you have a relationship with God that really works? Is it really on the inside? That's the question for all of us, me included. Now, Look at John chapter 12, and just look at Mary for a moment. Mary's the, what we ought to be. 12.3 says, then took Mary a pound of ointment, of spikered, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the odor. Again, going back to Luke, just to kind of supplement the concepts here, In Luke chapter ten verse thirty nine, it says that while Martha was cumbered about with much serving, oh there she is again, Mary sat at his feet and heard his word. Mary's always at his feet. And boy, when you look at Mary here, a picture of a child of God who walks after the Spirit. Picture of the child of God who it's inward, not outward. When you look and you understand, boy, there's three great lessons in verse 3 that just separates the Mary's from the Martha. I know the same great lessons that Zephaniah tried to get across to the nation of Israel. It has to be inward, not outward. And I want to look at this, and I want to talk to you today because let me tell you something. If you're going to go with ministry, if you're going to let God use you, and He already has, I'm not talking to you like you're people who don't know what I'm talking about. You're all good people, man. I, bring, I prayed when we started this church that God wouldn't bring us anybody that didn't want to do what ministry. I don't want to build a church of 10,000. I'd rather build a church of whatever we have that people are dedicated because I'll tell you something. I'm telling you. It's not about the outward appearance. It's about the inward. First thing she does, Bible says she anointed his feet. Now, to me, that's, a, that's an incredible concept. You know, taking this on beyond the New Testament, you know, the church that really is the model church for us, and I know all you know this, but in Acts chapter 13, you found the, find the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch is a great church. It is the model church for what we ought to be. It was bridging the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It was launching out with missions. It was launching out with everything that, that the New Testament church was, was going to do. It is an incredible, the first Bible teacher's, They're made up of multicultural people. It's an incredible church to study. And it's it's where the Bible says they're first called Christians at Antioch. And it's an incredible study. But one of the most incredible things about the church at Antioch is found in Acts chapter 13, verse 2, where it says the first thing about them is that they ministered not around the world, not to each other, but the first thing they did was minister to the Lord. Ask the average Christian what it means for you and me as individuals to minister to the Lord. They don't have a clue. They don't have a clue. And I'm not saying everybody that says that's a Martha. And I'm not saying everybody is saying that's a bad person. A lot of God's people have never been taught. my My point is not the point blaming anybody. My point here is to help you. I want you to become everything that God wants you to be. I don't care if you have marital problems. I don't care if you have personal problems. I don't care if you have kid problems. I don't care if you have whatever problems. My job is to help you be successful. My job is not to get down on you. My job is not to take you in a bad situation and make you feel worse. My job is to help lift you up. My job is to be there for you through thick or thin, just like you'd be for me. My job, it have been for me, my job is to, is to, is to, is to everything I can to show you how much I believe in you and I love you. As long as you want to do what's right, as long as you want to learn, my job is to help you be the best you can be at everything God wants you to be. That's my job. That's my job. My job is to find out a hundred thousand different ways to tell you I love you. My job as pastor is to find, is not to reach the world. My job is to find out a hundred billion different ways. To show you how much God loves you. My job is to do everything I know how to do in everything that I say in every act that I do is to convey to you that you know what it's an inward thing not an outward and you know what? It's to help you become the mom and the dad and the man and the woman and the young man and the young lady that God wants you to be that at the judgment seat of Christ you don't have anything to be ashamed of that you can say I gave it everything God I, I took everything and I applied it to my life I applied it to my marriage I applied it to my kids no I'm not perfect no I made sure I made mistakes yeah I did some really dumb things I don't care want to have some fun sometime come on over to my house and let's compare dumb things we've all done dumb things but building a relationship with God is a process it's a process of taking the things of God and learning how to minister to him first before you ever try to minister to somebody else Martha's definition of ministry Is busy. Mary's definition of ministry: sitting still, Lord first. I'll tell you something else. You know, when she takes this ointment and she anoints his feet, in verse six, Judas, who else, gets upset, and he says, "You know what? He takes the ACLU approach. You know, he takes the liberal approach. Well, you know what? I don't know why. Why we're doing this? We could take that money and give it to the poor. Look at all the people we could feed." There's a great lesson in that, too. Hey, I'm all for sending every, every dollar we can down to the tsunami thing. I'm all for it. I am 100%. Somebody said America's going to give a $100 billion. You had to give $200 billion. Saw the TV movie stars on the thing last night raising all the money. You know what? If just that bunch right there would just give 000, 000 a million dollars apiece, they wouldn't have to call anybody. They have enough to feed everybody. But oh, no, no. They want you to give. They want to keep theirs. See how it works? I'm all for it. I think we've got to send 60, $1,600 trillion down in one dollar bill so everybody has something to do. You know when you have a wad of one it makes you feel like you've got a lot of money. Until you spend it, and you realize how little it is. But anyway, I'm all for that. You know what I'm against? I'm against sending all that down there without sending the gospel down. That's what I'm against. Judas misses the point. He says, we ought to give all this money to the poor. What are we doing this for? You see, he couldn't see the concept of you got to minister to God first before you can minister to anybody else. But he's unsaved. He's a devil, John chapter 13. We can't count him. But Martha can't get it either. Mary got it. Jesus says down there when Judas got upset and he got mad about the thing, he says, leave her alone. Leave her alone. Against the day of my burial, she had had done this. Hey, she saw something in all of this that had to do with uh, Christ's death. Mary's got some depth to her. Mary understands spiritual things. Judas is upset. Martha's running around setting the place tables and doing everything she's doing. And and, and Jesus says in verse 7, Let her alone. Against the day of my burial, she had done this. I'll tell you something else. Why did she do his feet? Why did she do his feet? Every place in that Old Testament, when they anointed somebody, they did it on his head. When they anointed him king, they took the oil or whatever it was, and they put it on his head. They put it on his head. They put it on his head. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Why didn't she dump it on his head? Why his feet? I'll tell you why. Mary's deep. Well, Martha's running around doing everything and building nothing, Mary understands Song of Solomon, chapter 7, verse 1. Martha's running around, running the world. Mary, understand Nahum chapter 1 verse 5 and Isaiah chapter 52 verse 7 about his feet. Mary knows something about those feet. She knows something about the second coming of Christ, reading those passages. She's not putting it on his head. She's putting it on his feet because of what the prophets told her about his feet. In relationship to the second, she's deep. She's deep. She has got her Bible down. And then the second thing she does. She takes and she anoints his feet with very costly ointment. And then the Bible says the next thing she does, she uses her hair to wipe his feet. Now let me just say something to you here. And I'm saying this to everybody. This thing represents of her hair on his feet represents her personal commitment to him. Not in being saved.